The biggest surprise for us was that we could change as quickly as we did. We could operate faster and do more. We joke and say, you know, if you had asked us this pre-pandemic, we would have put together, uh, you know, a multidiscipline task force, studied it for two years and said it was impossible. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Charles Lowry, Chairman and CEO of Prudential Financial. Over the past three years, Charlie has led a transformation of the 150-year-old insurance and investment management company, a journey that has also spanned the entire pandemic. Today, he joins us to talk about how he rooted Prudential's transformation in the firm's purpose. Charlie previously served as Executive Vice President and COO of Prudential's International Businesses, and also as EVP and COO of Prudential's U.S. Businesses. And these roles were after he held numerous other senior executive positions over a more than 20-year span with the company. During today's session, Charlie will discuss his experiences with Dame Vivian Hunt, a senior partner in our London office. Vivian advises companies on a broad range of strategic topics with a particular focus on performance transformation, growth, and organizational agility. She's also published several articles on the role of purpose and stakeholder capitalism, and her background also includes a stint in the Peace Corps in Senegal. Charlie and Vivian, welcome. Vivian, over to you to kick us off. Thank you, Sean, and welcome, Charlie. We're delighted to have you. Well, thank you. I am delighted and honored to be here, Vivian. Sean always uh, includes some wonderful professional accolades and accomplishments that, on paper, it looks obviously result in you becoming chairman and CEO of Prudential. Did it feel that linear to you or that obvious? Uh, Not at all. Vivian, I started my career as an architect. I started my own firm when I graduated, uh, naively enough, uh, which is a whole nother story about starting your own business, uh, from which I learned a lot. But then I decided to go back to business school to get some business experience before returning to architecture, but ended up in real estate investment banking for 13 years at J.P. Morgan. And Prudential was a client of mine for 10 years, so when they were looking for a new head of real estate investment management, they thought of me as a potential candidate, and I was lucky enough to get the job. So my career has been anything but linear. And if you asked my 20-year-old self, what are you going to be when you grow up? It would not have been the chairman and CEO of Prudential. But sort of back at you, right? So my career has been anything but linear, but but that's the same with you. Uh, How do you go from being in the Peace Corps in Senegal to being a senior partner in the London office of McKinsey? That's not what, (laughs) what I would think of as kind of a straight line. It, it, it definitely wasn't straight, and the road was definitely not smooth either. But um, when I finished uh, university, I had the great fortune of a wonderful, wonderful education. You know, my parents placed a huge emphasis on that. But I think when I finished college, I, I felt I just needed something that was very different to what I'd done before, something that was um, a little more hands-on, living and working in a different culture and context and learning a new language. I also really wanted to work in a culture that was of, in, of color uh, as well. And so the time in Senegal, they had assigned me to the healthcare and midwifery program. And then that's when I found uh, healthcare and just worked in that, that field for the next 15 or 20 years, same as you've ended up doing in a way, but you know, almost on the path through real estate instead of, you know, in my case, the path through through the Peace Corps. Yeah, I know exactly. And What's interesting about what you just said is is 
what the pandemic has showed and what, what you showed in the beginning of your career is the importance of mental health, right? That, that fatigue and just being, being tired or stressed can, can lead to uh, a lack of productivity or lack of direction. And so the, the premium we are all now putting on mental health is so important. And it sounds like you needed that break. Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. But what was the what observation would you say about like the difference between you know, your purpose as a leader and Prudential's purpose when you first joined them versus now? Because it's been three or four years since you've taken on this particular role. Sure. Well, Prudential, it's very much of a purpose-driven company. You know, it's almost been 150 years since since our founders started the company to provide burial insurance to working class families that didn't have access to financial products. That remains the same today. And so people, including myself, uh, work at Prudential for a variety of reasons, but but the unifying reason for us, Vivian, is our purpose of making lives better by solving the financial challenges in a changing world. And through that, focusing on our clients, our customers, and our communities in which we live and work, as well as shareholders. Now, now for me personally, um, how do I connect to that purpose? I, there, there are a couple of ways. First, and this, this may sound trite, but you know, I get up every day and I try and make Prudential a better company for all our stakeholders. You know, some days you succeed, some days you don't feel like you succeed, but, but you get up every day and you just want to make the company a little better. Secondly, it's honestly, it's through my family history. So in the late 1850s, my great grandfather, who was 12 at the time, um, when he was orphaned, his, his grandfather died and he was the youngest of, of six kids came to the U.S. and became a machinist in a factory that was half a mile from where I'm sitting right now in Prudential's headquarters. And he was typical of the kind of worker that Prudential uh, was created to serve at a time when the death of a breadwinner could often leave families not not just bereft, but but bankrupt. Now, you fast forward 150 years, and we're still focused on expanding access to financial services and products for our customers, except we're doing it on a, on a global scale with, uh, with 50 million people. I, I understand that shared mission, but something in you and or the company needed additional focus because you have, you know, had a strategic renewal or an, and an ongoing transformation over the last couple of years. So that heritage gives you a great route to and foundation to stand on. And I love the image of your great grandfather so that you can always sort of picture the household and the types of families and people that hopefully Prudential is serving even today around the world. But at the same time, you must have seen some areas where uh, a new strategy or new choices were needed. Well, absolutely. And, and you talked earlier about taking time and reflection. And during that reflection, there was a change at the end. We, we've had exactly the same thing. So when I first took the CEO role at the end of 2018, we recognized that Prudential was facing some some significant headwinds and the company needed to become more nimble, less market sensitive and and higher growth. And to achieve these goals, we we set out a three-part strategy. The first was to produce a higher level of consistency of earnings relative to guidance. The second was the actual transformation itself, the transformation initiative, which had three parts. You know, reviewing and, and refining product strategy and, and product mix, creating and executing a cost savings program because we had to offset some costs of low interest rates. And the third was yeah. uh, conduct a strategic review of our businesses. And then the third part of the strategy was uh, to be prudent stewards of capital. 
right? Yeah. Balancing um, investing in the businesses with returning capital to shareholders. So for the past two years, we've been just executing on that strategy. But but the interesting thing is, our, our employees started to ask us, okay, that's that's what you're you're doing to transform the company. But what are you going to become? Because you you can't shrink your way to greatness. And right. so we realized as we talked to employees uh, that we needed to create a new vision for Prudential in the future, uh, which is completely aligned with our purpose. And that new vision is to become a global leader in expanding access, using those two words again, expanding access to investing insurance and retirement security. And, and as you might guess, there are three parts to, we have three parts to that vision or three goals. And that is to invest in our growth businesses, focus on our customers, and create the next generation of solutions. And a lot of strategy is choices, um, both what you decide to do, you know, more of or prioritize or move ahead in the sequence, or indeed the things that you don't do. So the earnings and the evidence of prudent, responsible, highest and best use of capital in some ways are outcome metrics, but the sort of the meat is in the middle of the choices that it sounds like the business needed to make. Was it difficult to make some of those choices be big and substantial, particularly since you had worked at Prudential for several years before becoming CEO? You know, sometimes it's hard to look at a really familiar, probably successful and much loved place and, and see where you might need to make changes. You've hit the nail on the head, Vivian. So not only is it difficult to do that, but, but the biggest challenge we face is that we weren't doing badly, right? We, we didn't have a burning platform. And yet we needed to change right away. And so we had to think about the catalysts for that change. I mean, how do you explain to, to stakeholders, especially employees, the necessity and, in fact, the urgency to change? And so there were, th there were three catalysts. The first, you always look to your customers. And customers, as you well know, uh, given your business, but they want a seamless experience with speed and convenience. Uh, both mm -hmm. tech and human touch, so they need both of those things. And the yep. industry itself, if you look at our competitors, um, is, is seeing consolidation, it's seeing activism. So so we needed to change. The, the second catalyst was low interest rates, which aren't yep. friendly to insurance companies. And the yep. third was the pandemic, which which came upon us, and, and so we were uh, working remotely. The biggest surprise for us was that we could change as quickly as we did. We could operate faster and do more. We joke and say, you know, if you had asked us this pre-pandemic, we would have put together, uh, um, you know, uh, a multidiscipline task force, studied it for two years and said it was impossible. Pilots, Charlie, lots of pilots, scale-ups, prototypes. <laughs> you bet. And, and, and yet we did it, Vivian, in a week. And that was perhaps the greatest proof point to our employees that we could move and move quickly and we could change and we could adapt. And that in and of itself was a big factor in creating the urgency um, and the corroboration that we could and we need to change. But it shows you what you can do, even at a large scale across, you know, a wide and really diverse organization. And if you can do those uh, urgent, needed, and sometimes, you know, even noble things during the pandemic, the other business challenges you face, you probably can accomplish those as well. I think the other interesting thing about things that are a little more permanent after the pandemic, Charlie, is this notion, pace and agility, that you can move with pace and agility, but is this notion of doing so also with care? You know, there's a whole new 
level of well, particularly employee well-being, but also customer well-being that I think is now built into at least how I understand prudential strategy, but many successful companies where they are trying to better communicate to their stakeholders how their business objectives also can help with a set of holistic objectives or care for the community, care for employees. But I really hope that the care and engagement and just thought about multiple stakeholders' needs and objectives, I hope that stays with us, Charlie, because I think it's made you know even the workplace more caring and more relevant to to employees and customers? Uh, without a doubt. And, and you hear uh, much more talk about multi-stakeholder frameworks and multi-stakeholder commitments. And, and frankly, Prudential's um, commitment to our stakeholders starts at the top with, with our board. And in fact, in 2019, before, before the pandemic and all this happened, our board adopted a multi-stakeholder framework that recognizes the board's duty, quite frankly, to enable positive change for a much broader set of individuals, groups, interests, communities in which we live and work, in addition to creating strong value for, for shareholders, which is obviously a, a major part of this as well. But as you would know, engaging with stakeholders isn't a monolithic journey. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And each region, at least in, in which we operate, have different aspects uh, of our businesses that are in different stages of development. And so we have to take a tailored approach, if you will, to each country and each region in terms of not only our transformation, but in terms of the consideration of all our stakeholders as we go forward. Charlie, Vivian, this is a great conversation. I'd love to interject with a quick question here. Charlie, you talked about how Prudential moved very quickly to operating virtually when the pandemic hit. If maintaining that agility and faster metabolic rate is now part of Prudential's transformation, how are you helping make sure that this new pace is sustainable and doesn't lead to people burning out? One of the real challenges of, of any transformation is, is re really two, two challenges. One, as you say, how do you make it permanent? And two, uh, how, do you, how do you prevent burnout from taking place? I think you make it permanent by uh, combining top down with, with bottom up. So this can't be unilateral. You, you can't just say, you know, thou shalt transform and expect the organization to do it. You have to build a certain degree of consensus. There has to be very strong direction, but then you, you do have to establish buy-in. There, there may be some personnel changes that have to occur, but at the mm -hmm. end of the day, People need to understand the direction which you're going. The other part I'd say is that the transformation, again, has to be rooted in purpose. There, there has to be a reason for it, which is why the creation of our vision to be a global leader in expanding access to investing insurance and retirement security is so important because that means that people are going to be working really hard during a transition uh, and, and a transformation. They have to know why they're working hard. They have to know that they're their jobs, what they are doing is meaningful to the company and is linked to the purpose. And if you can do that, one, people can, can work through working hard because they know that they're working hard for a reason. And two, it, it will make the transformation more sustainable. Vivian, I don't know, you, you've helped so many companies through, through transformations. You may uh, have a lot to add on this. The biggest correlation in agile organization is reconsideration of decisions and 
improving decisions as you go, sometimes changing your mind too, but improving decisions as you go along. And I think that's that quite, it's quite important because it unlocks people, Charlie, to think bigger thoughts, bring forward their biggest suggestions, be contrarian, challenge their manager, improve things for a customer, be honest about their experiences. Most people are probably at, you know, 40 or 50% of their capacity, but the opportunity to unlock anyone, any one of us, to be at 80 or 90% of our capacity as a steady state for working, I mean, that's a huge impact on engagement and relevance. I know why I'm here and what I'm doing, but also it improves productivity. And so it's not a mistake that organizations that do that well also perform better. It can be liberating. That's a word that comes to mind when, when you're talking about working in an agile framework or others. Because if, if you can work faster, if you can work with colleagues, if you can innovate, if you can see the, the success of your efforts, then, um, as I always say, success begets success, right? So, so uh, if you can have some quick wins along the way, uh, that will be very liberating, liberating and energizing for employees. Are you all seeing, um, this is probably an unfair question, Charlie, but are you seeing the, you know, flickers of what they call the great resignation? How is that impacting your, your organization and, and your talent? Well, first of all, I've dubbed it, I've changed it from the great resignation to the great rotation, right? Because now it seems like it's musical chairs. A lot of people sort of thought about whether they wanted to be in, in business in the beginning of the pandemic, but now it just seems like rotation. I, I think in any company that says they're not experiencing this to some degree um, it is, you know, uh, boy, I'd like to meet them. So we, we're certainly experiencing it. And sort of the thing I would say is that it really, this whole effort um, or this great rotation is really putting a premium on talent. And we are, as you are, a, absolutely a talent-based organization. And so these three aspects, the attraction, development, and retention of talent, go absolutely hand in hand. So, you know, to, to, to kind of combat the great rotation, we're, we're doing a number of things. We're expanding where and how we look for talent, creating stronger relationships with schools and organizations and using our business resource groups, which we have, and they're very strong and they're really good, as a source of referrals. You know, and then you go on to the retention of talent. That's incredibly important. So we're increasing the number of regular conversations we have between employees and managers to strengthen relationships and develop trust. We also provide employees with, with career opportunities, meaning new positions, but also development opportunities, meaning a chance to develop skills and experience by which to attain those new positions so they don't have to go outside the firm to look for them. We can, we can actually provide those. And we created something called the Talent Marketplace, which, which links up the skills of an employee with the skills needed for the open positions and puts them together. Uh, and if they don't have all those skills, provide them access to free courses and reskilling programs that make that are made available to all employees. And then we measure that, right? So as an example, we have uh, increased materially the number of positions we fill from within Prudential uh, relative to a couple of years ago. And last year, our employees logged on about 140,000 uh, hours of learning. That's a big part of the retention program is saying, look, you don't have to look outside of Prudential to have a great career and really interesting and diverse opportunities. You know, you just look at my career. Uh, I joke that I couldn't keep a job within Prudential. I kept moving from job to job. And, and that, that made it interesting and, and 
lively at times. It made it scary, right? You're plunked into a new position you don't know a lot about, and you're like, how am I going to figure this out? But you do uh, with the support of your colleagues. And it, it means that you can have a, a really robust and interesting career. You know, both of our careers, Charlie, have had a lot of, um, let me call it uh, linear hierarchical progression. You've gotten bigger jobs, different geographies. But, you know, if you put it on an org chart, you've moved up, I moved up. I don't think people necessarily join a company today wanting to move, quote, up. They want to develop and in some ways have a bigger territory, a bigger purpose, reskill, try different things, rotate, not necessarily just get promoted and replace their manager. And so if you combine those ideas of, you know, technology enhancement and needing to reskill combined with longer, broader career journeys, there's actually a lot that you could do within, you know, an organization big and diverse skill set wise, as Prudential obviously is. Absolutely. And you link that back to the purpose. If you believe in the purpose, that becomes your, your overriding factor. And then you want a really interesting career w within that to serve the purpose. And as you said, it doesn't just mean linearly moving up within a certain function or business. Uh, we're encouraging people, in fact, to go from functions to business and business to functions and back and forth without necessarily taking the traditional course, as you, uh, as you said. Charlie, could you maybe share a few examples of where Prudential staff are becoming more purpose-driven in the ways they work and any examples of where you were really tested on Prudential's purpose and how you were living it? Sure. So if, if you think about our, our uh, different businesses, you, you think about providing life insurance or retirement security. There are countless examples of, of people who take immense pride in providing financial security and peace of mind to people. And, and I look at our, our Japan business as an example, and they live that every single day. And they, they cite examples of families where the, the breadwinner has died and uh, the reason why the family can continue to live their lives is because of the life insurance we provide. The other part I would say is if you look at the, the work we do on, on a social basis, take the, the S of ESG, you know, we, we've invested over a billion dollars in Newark through the buildings, through the support of educational uh, institutions and cultural institutions. We have over, uh, we have one of the largest impact investing portfolios, I think, of any company in the world. It's, it's over a billion dollars as well. So we, you know, we live this every day and it's just, a, it's a really important part of why people work here. And I love the idea of asking yourself or having your managers work with their teams to say, you know, how does this, how do you define purpose? How does it link to your role? Problem solving, how that can be more so the case, challenging each other when you might not be living up to it. And that's an active dialogue in addition to, you know, the hard work of delivering great products and services. I loved the second part of that question um, as well, Sean. Uh, you know, when have you been challenged on this? How do you, how have you pressure tested that this is real? I, I think, Vivian, it's pressure tested every day when it is the choices you make. So it, we live in a multi-stakeholder multi framework. Which stakeholder are you going to prioritize at which time in order to become the sustainable company we are and to have been around for 150 years? You can't prioritize one specific constituency over everyone else if you want to you know, survive for 150 years and not only survive, but thrive. 
Uh, and, and finally, I would say, as we enter into this transformation, you can't stay the same. You have to change. Companies don't exist for 150 years without reinventing themselves. And so as you reinvent yourself, in some ways, you're pressure testing yourself as to your, your beliefs, your purpose, and how you're going to act going forward. Yeah, well, I think it is. Um, it, but just, I think, to make explicit the notion of a framework and choices. And, you know, the pandemic's a really good example. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the clear priority on um, the health and wellness of your employees and continuing to provide the important needed services uh, in a reliable way to your customers, it was clearly a priority. But my point is you have an explicit framework, um, Charlie, and I wouldn't take that for granted. Not every company um, has a, a framework that is uh, a, a explicitly multi-stakeholder, that is quantified in terms of its impact, that is long-term, and therefore gives you the opportunity to explain to people, sometimes for really obvious reasons like a pandemic or an urgent situation, others more... Um, linked to your strategic uh, choices and the operational roles. You know, why is my job changing? Why is it necessary? And that framework is what allows you to manage it going forward. I think a lot of companies need to be explicit about their choices, even when it means some things have to wait or some things won't be resourced at this time or something's not a priority. Even when the answer is no, you can explain it much more credibly to your, uh, to your stakeholders when you have to make those tough choices. Absolutely. Having the con having a very strong context by which to make those choices and set the priorities. And as a result, the resource allocation is is critical um, as as you know, a company thinks about moving into the future. Absolutely. I'm really encouraged that the data clearly correlates with, you know, companies who are making holistic, longer term decisions with higher performance. So they're not trading, you know, the financial performance and our fiduciary responsibilities. All, you know, that's not a negative trade or a false choice between your stakeholder needs and financial performance. But it does mean prioritization, sequencing, you know, living within your means, just like a household budget and all the other things that I know uh, Prudential also has to do. Exactly. I mean, they're mutually reinforcing. And I think if you if you think about all the stakeholders over time, you will have a stronger company that performs better for all stakeholders, including shareholders. Uh, and, you know, you live to see another day. I want to follow up on one point that was raised about how this differs around the world. I suppose the fundamental commitment to expanding access and incorporating a multi-stakeholder approach doesn't differ around the world. But have you seen different challenges of the strategy in different parts of your business? Or how has the global nature of Prudential impacted your choices? Sure. Um, I would say they're challenges, but they're more opportunities than challenges, right? So we live in a, a world with global competitors, and we need to understand what they're doing, what, what we can learn from them. You know, emerging markets are so far ahead of us in, in so many ways. I remember 10 years ago when we were um, first considering uh, going into Africa, I went over and I was in Kenya and Nairobi, and I took some folks out to dinner and I went to, to pay for dinner and I pulled out my wallet and a credit card and they all started laughing at me. And they're right. like, you still, you, you still have a wallet? You still have plastic? You know, we use M-Pesa. We've used it for years. We, you know, you guys are so far behind. These are fascinating advances that, that we could learn from as we go. So, you know, what I would say is the, the international experience that I have had has shaped my perspective by giving me perspective. 
And I think that's true for many colleagues at Prudential, because I think you need to understand what's happening globally if you want to succeed domestically. In many of the emerging markets, they've absolutely leapfrogged over an entire generation of, of technology. Just think about landlines. Uh, going yeah. back to Africa, they just don't have a lot of landlines, so they're all they're all you know mobile literate. Thanks, Charlie. Now, now I'd like to jump in with just one more question, if I may. Uh, it, this is related to the technology you're talking about right now, Charlie, and how you use it to connect your organization around purpose. For example, when people are majority working remotely, creating opportunities for mentorship and apprenticeship can become much more challenging. How do you ensure that your corporate culture and purpose are effectively conveyed to your new joiners and that they're sustained amongst your current colleagues? In other words, how do you help your people all align around your purpose, even in a remote or hybrid environment? So the remote environment is, it, it, it has been, it's been difficult uh, to, for, to, to work in for a number of reasons. There's culture, there's innovation, and there's learning. And if you look at those three, uh, we've asked ourselves the question, not uh, why should you work remotely, but we've, we've sort of turned that around and said, why do you need to come back to work? And those are the three reasons, because culture atrophies over time. And for those people who haven't been in the hallways of Prudential, they don't really have a good appreciation of the culture. So you need to bring people back. There's no question about it, to get inculcated into the culture to meet their colleagues in person. The, the second is, is innovation, where um, we can innovate, and we prove to ourselves we can innovate remotely, but you don't get the spontaneous combustion. You don't get this spontaneous discussion around the water cooler of, gosh, you know, Sean or Vivian, what, what about this idea? And, and so that's something that you need as well, because the spontaneity of thought is a critical part to innovation. You don't need to be there every day for that, but you need to be there part of the time. And then the third is learning, and especially for uh, younger folks who, who are joining the firm, how do they learn? Well, they learn some through skills and by learning, but they learn a lot through osmosis. They learn by sitting next to Vivian and watching her uh, as she thinks through problems, as she, as she talks to clients. And so it's going to be really important to bring our younger folks back uh, who have just joined the firm or have joined the firm for the first time uh, in, in whatever part of their career. To, to understand the way in which we learn work and to learn from uh, others who have more experience. I mean, it, it gets to what we were talking about earlier about retention, right? Because if, if employees feel cared for, if they feel heard, if they feel like people are looking out for them, and as you say, I love the word advocate, advocating for them, uh, then they are much more likely to stay at the firm because they say, aha, I, I, I feel welcome, I feel valued, and I feel like I can have a career here. So I think these things go hand in hand, uh, but it's going to be very important whether uh, remote, hybrid, or fully in person to embrace many of the things you said, Vivian. Charlie and Vivian, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as well. 
As always, we'll share a transcript of the conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous podcasts. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future episode, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, just sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.